Are you curious about the new HSK? Do you want to know what it's really like to take and pass the advanced level? And how should you prepare to ace your own exams? Hello and welcome to the Hacking Chinese podcast. In this week's episode, I'm talking with Sara Yaksula about the HSK, which is of course the Hanyu Shuiping Kaoshi, which is the most widely used proficiency exam for non-native speakers of Chinese. Different versions of this exam has been around for a while, and the most recent standard was published in 2021. But so far, there has only been actual tests for seven to nine, which is the most advanced level. We have talked about the HSK 3.0 on the podcast before, namely in episode 47. And actually, most of the things that were said back then are still true today, and we don't know that much more, except, of course, for the advanced exam that covers levels seven through nine, which was offered last year. And that is what we're going to talk about in this episode. Since I didn't take the exam myself, I have enlisted the help of someone who did. So, without further ado, here is my interview with Sara Yaksula. Hello, Sarah, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ola. Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, so I looked a little bit through our conversations before, and I found that the first time we had any kind of interaction was in January 2012. So that's almost 11 years ago, and it took this long to、uh, actually have a real conversation. But it's great to have you here. For those who don't know you, would you mind introducing yourself? Yes, of course, and I can't believe it's been 12 years. Finally, we are here. But、uh, hi everyone listening over there. My name is Sara Yaksola. I'm from Finland, but since 2010 I have been studying and then working in Guangzhou, China, kind of having a mission of、uh, learning and teaching Chinese for the past、uh, over 10 years. And、uh, it's my pleasure to be here on the podcast today to be able to share some of my experiences and have a nice chat with all of you as well. To talk about learning Chinese. Yeah, I think that's how I. You used to have a blog that was called "Living a Dream in China." Was that the name? Yes, that is correct. I don't use the name anymore. I do have the same exact blog. I started in、uh, 2010. It just bears my name, sarayaksula.com, but it's the same blog. And if you want to, you could go to the archives all the way back to 2010 when I moved to China. Yeah, and I think that's fascinating to have this kind of record of your entire experience. Well, not the entire experience, but the things you chose to write about, at least. And I'll put links to all of these things so people can access them later. And of course, if there are any any other place online you want people to go, but your website seems to be a very good place to start, right? Yes, definitely. That's a good place to go to.、Mm-hmm. Okay, so how did you? Why did you start learning Chinese? I think we must have started. Roughly around the same time, we started teaching around the same time. I think. So, how did you get into learning Chinese, and how did you end up where you are in life right now? How did you end up there, and how is Chinese involved in in that? So, I often like to say that all of this actually goes back to、uh, the eighties, when my parents used to live in Beijing for four years, and during the very last year of their stay in Beijing, my mother was actually expecting me. And even I was born in Finland. They moved back, but you could say I had some of my early experiences in China, and my parents' experience in China definitely influenced me. And I was always fascinated by the country and the language. 
at school, I would always choose to do different projects or posters about China. Uh, I remember finding my dad's old uh, Berlitz uh, phrase book from the 80s, from the bookshelf as well, and just try going through the pages and, you know, okay, trying to figure out how things are pronounced. But it wasn't until I was in high school, second year of high school, when during the summer we had a chance to enroll on a two-week course on uh, learning Chinese and doing Taiji as well. So even uh-huh. we only kind of keep our toes into the water with learning Chinese, but that was the first time having having any kind of lessons. And but it was then much later in university than in Finland when I started to to have regular lessons at the university through our language institute. So that was then back in two thousand eight when I started those lessons twice a week. Yeah, okay. So that's almost exactly when I started, because I think we have a similar first experience. Well, my parents hadn't been to Beijing before I went there, but how how was your studies in, in Finland when you first started learning? How What was that like? So in Finland at the time, we didn't have the option to study Chinese as a major, so you could only enroll through the Language Institute uh, an hour or two per week. And... Uh, at the time, Chinese language was not quite that uh, popular language to begin with. So when started with our beginner courses, we had two groups in the autumn. Then spring semester, we were down to one. And the year after, we were down to none, as there was not enough people to enroll. Hmm. But luckily, I could then enroll at the lessons at the Open University instead. And I had some of the best people studying with me. And it was a group of um, uh, retired old ladies who'd never been to China. Not sure if they ever went to China, but they were just the best company of thinking of like, I'm exercising my brain by learning Chinese. And that was just a huge inspiration to Uh be studying Chinese with this uh, around 60 or so aged, uh, wonderful ladies. Yeah, it certainly does exercise the brain and one's memory, to be sure. Okay, but then you you left Finland. Yes, so during the autumn 2009, I happened to see this information about the study exchange uh, through my university to China. And it just happened to be the right time uh, in my life to take that kind of opportunity. So I decided to apply and then luckily got uh, accepted into the study exchange program. And then came to came to China in early 2010. Hmm. I'm just curious here because I personally I ended up with Chinese as the main thing that I do a little bit by accident. Like obviously I was interested, and I think you also listened to my How I Learned Chinese series. You probably know this, but just mm-hmm. as a reminder, I just got a scholarship that I didn't really plan on. If I hadn't gotten that scholarship, I'm not sure that I would have found another way to do what I'm doing now. Maybe I would just have done something completely different. What was it like for you with this exchange? Like, let's say you didn't get, you hadn't gotten this exchange. Do you think you would have found another way to to get to China? It sounds like you had a strong desire to go there, not just, I mean, you maybe you would have found another way. What do you think? I think I would have come at least visited China one way or the other, but would it have been the same uh, living here over 10 years, I feel that's very difficult to say as that opportunity came uh, at the right time 
being young university student, not having any responsibilities, it was very easy to just, you know, pack up a backpack and, and go. Somehow I feel that, you know, I would be tied up with, with Chinese culture and language somehow, but maybe it could have looked a lot different. Hmm. Yeah. That is just an interesting thing to, to think about. Okay, so have you been in China since then? That was, you said, 2010. So now it's 2023. Yes, I've been here since uh, 2010. Of course, you know, once you're visiting home, but I've been living here since that. When I first came, I was planning to see, okay, one semester. Let's see what it's about. Because I've always been interested in Chinese culture, so I was a little bit worried that my expectations would be too high, and I was a little bit scared. Oh, what if I'm, you know, getting to China and then I absolutely mm. hate it? Like, what I'm gonna then <laughs> yeah. do with my life? But uh, obviously, if that didn't happen, because then I just decided to stay and didn't go back to Finland to, to live anymore. Mm. Okay, so I know this question is going to be very hard, but so you've been in China for 13 years. Uh, how would you summarize what you've done during all this time? Like if you were to choose some things you think that the listeners would like to know or that you think are particularly interesting or important, what would you say? Now, definitely my, my first uh, six years or so were fully dedicated to learning Chinese, first as an exchange student, then as an undergraduate student and then as a master's student. So there was a lot of, a lot of studying going, going on during those, uh, those years, to put it uh, shortly. After that, then during the middle, uh, of course, perhaps getting married to my Cantonese husband and having a daughter while doing my master's degree have definitely shaped uh, my life as well. And I've been uh, lucky to be able to teach Chinese then since uh, 2014 part-time and then since 2017 full-time. So the first like six uh, years of my life here been learning and dedicating into study and then the latter six years then dedicated into teaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. And what about now? I've heard that, or I know because you told me and you've written it on your website, you have started a PhD, is that right? Yes, that's correct. I believe perhaps many of us during the years of the pandemic had more time in our lives and uh, think about where you want to be going or taking up new challenges. And I had been teaching for five, six years at that time, and I felt I was ready for a new challenge. And I had questions that I've been wondering about my students or the best ways ways to help them to learn Chinese. So I. It was kind of by accident, really. I didn't plan it. When I was doing my master's, I decided, okay, I'm never going to write a thesis ever again. But years later, I happened to see this job ad for a Finnish university of a Chinese language professor. And I definitely am not qualified for that kind of a job. But that got the idea thinking that, wait a minute, perhaps in the future, this could be something for me to do and be able to develop this field of uh, teaching Chinese. So it was a long, long mm -hmm. journey to apply for this program in Finland at the University of Turku. But after a year of preparation, I then started my PhD program at the education department, now January 2023. 
And, and this is then, I assume, done online mostly because you're still in China and the, the university is in Finland? Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, I'm happy to find such a great uh, supervisors that uh, accepted me to be a, a student uh, online. And uh, in my PhD program, most of the time you're actually doing your own research, uh, which you could do anywhere where you have your research participants. And we have a very few courses and most of those can also be attended online. Mm, okay, that sounds great. We will probably talk about this in a later talk, maybe some when you come further into the actual the, the actual program. But what are your thoughts right now about what you want to what are you going to study? What is the focus of your what do you think it will be about your thesis? So my thesis is about uh, the study motivation of adult Mandarin Chinese learners and especially what kind of fac factors affect their motivation. Because motivation is one of the keys to a successful language learning. But what are the reasons, the variables that affect it? Why are some people easily motivated? Why are some people easily to lose motivation? And all those different reasons that uh, go around it. So I'll be mm. focusing on that for the next four, five or six years. Yeah, I mean, that sounds really interesting. And I also think it's great when you research something that has like uh, something that has popped up in your own teaching. You notice something like, why is this student doing this? Why is this student so interesting? Whereas these over here, they dropped out for some reason. And sometimes, of course, it's something that isn't related to Chinese. And sometimes it is related to Chinese, or it might be related to the teacher or the course or something else, right? And, and all these things are terribly interesting, I think. And also very important because I remember when I took a class in second language acquisition in grad school, and the teacher basically said that, well, there's lots of research that says that motivation is not terribly important. And then we looked at the, the research in question, and it's mostly, you know, if you compare groups that are motivated with those that are not, and you set them very specific tasks for a duration of time, well, there is not a huge difference in how they perform. But then it felt to me like you're missing the point here because the people who are not motivated, they will not even do these things. They will just go and play soccer or computer games or do something else. And that's fine. I'm not saying everybody needs to learn Chinese and it's the only worthwhile activity in life. But I think motivation is the most important thing because if you don't have that, you will not spend time. And if you don't spend time, it really doesn't matter. Nothing else matters because you won't learn. So motivation is where everything starts and sometimes, sadly, also where it ends. Yes, definitely. Being able to observe my my students, perhaps uh, close to 100 students, so if, uh, if I may speculate, and really the motivation seems to be the number one thing to see if someone has the perseverance and the grit to continue uh, learning. So it's very exciting to be able to truly focus on that question in the coming years. Mm. Yeah. And as I think the audience can hear, there are lots of things we could talk about here. And in the future, there will be even more things once you, like you said, when you've had time to actually research these questions more and um, come further into your PhD. But the reason we're talking now is we talked on, on Messenger and you mentioned that you had taken the new HSK. Yes. Yeah, and the HSK is obviously something that lots of students are interested in. And on Hacking Chinese, when I write about HSK, it seems to get more attention than other things that I write. So people care about this. 
And just as a very brief background, a new standard was published uh, almost exactly two years ago now. I think it was July 1st, 2021. And everybody freaked out and thought HSK would change immediately and, you know, the test would be completely different and so on. But actually, what I said in an article I published around then was that, well, actually, nothing has changed for a large majority of people because the HSK, the lower levels, the HSK 1 through 6, will remain exactly the same for the foreseeable future. And two years later, we can also see that it is still the same. They haven't rolled out the 1 to 6 levels yet. But they did roll out 7 to 9. And that's what you did, right? Yes, that's right. I did the new HSK uh, 7 to 9 levels last year in November. Okay, so th this is very interesting to me because I spent so much time looking at the standard, like the documents that specify what's supposed to be in what level and so on. Would you mind just generally talking about your experience? Like, What, what was it like to take this new exam? It was quite intimidating, to be honest, because the new exam was out and... Uh, we knew roughly what kind of a sections the exam would have, but the information on the exam was extremely limited. So basically, you were signed up for an exam. You didn't really know what to expect. No, you know, clear textbooks to study, like for levels one to six. You can just hit the textbooks. You know, this is going to be in the exam. But this was just completely like, what's going to happen? What they're going to ask? What kind of a vocabulary is needed? So at the time, I was really thinking, like, will I be wasting uh, a thousand RMB here signing up for an exam? I have no idea what's going to happen. So it was mm -hmm. quite a, a scary thing to do. But I was more curious to just find out what it was all about and also excited that there was a new goal, a clear goal. I'm, I'm very much motivated by goals. And apparently, I'm motivated by exams, so mm -hmm. I really were hoping for to have this kind of a very clear goal to prepare for and get me, you mm -hmm. know, into the study mode uh, again. Yeah. Uh, so, so one of the reasons they changed, I think, I mean, they, maybe they haven't said this outright, is that the old HSK, and this is a, becomes confusing when you talk about old and new, let's, I'll say HSK 2.0, which is the version that came out in 2010, I think. And this new one is then 3.0 because new and old, and then we have the very old and it, it gets confusing. So that one had the problem that HSK 6 was not terribly advanced. If you compare with, say, uh, European language tests for like C1 and C2, which were much more advanced than the, the old HSK, sorry, HSK 2.0 level 6. Uh, and I'm not saying this to intimidate anybody who's listening and who thinks that the, the current HSK 6 is super hard. I don't mean to say it's very easy. I'm just saying that if you're comparing with, say, educated native proficiency, it is very easy. And so one of the things they wanted to change was to have an exam that could test the whole range of proficiency and be more in line with other language standards. So were you intimidated by, I mean, you said you felt a bit intimidated by the test because obviously you know that it was meant to be much harder. So how did that feel? Like, you know, and now I'm going to take this exam and they've made it hard. Like that's part of the point here. They want to make it difficult. How did that feel? For me, I was happy that there was something harder after the HSK 6 exam that I did in 2013 and 2016. And I was expecting it to be hard. I wanted it to be hard and challenging to push me to continue to learn Chinese. 
what was intimidating was that uh, you kind of went into the exam. I thought I was going to the into ex into the exam without knowing anything what to expect. Whereas in Hesse's case six, you have countless of mock exams and you know what will be coming towards you. Now, luckily, before the exam, uh, a week before, we had a chance to do a mock exam and to find out what the exam would be like. Without that mock exam, it would have mm -hmm, been even okay. more difficult to do. Yeah, because that's obviously the one of the downsides with exams is that there is this practice effect if you've done the same exam many times. Or if you've done mock exams, you will do better on the exam than if you haven't. And that's nothing bad if you want a good grade, but it also adds some factors that are not related to Chinese proficiency. I mean, strategies for taking exams in themselves are unrelated to your ability to use Chinese in the real world, but they still have a huge impact on your score. And in this case, yeah, like you said, if you if you got a mock exam a little bit in advance, at least you could build some idea of how to approach the test, right? So did that work out then? How, how did it? I mean, I have so many questions, I don't know where to start. But if you were to summarize in general, how did it go? What, what was difficult? What went well? Uh, what did you think about the, the exam? So... I would I could say that my first impressions were first of all from the mock exam going from absolutely no idea what's going to happen then into actually actually doing that. What I noticed about the listening on the audio content uh, on the mock exam, uh, I found it rather easy to uh, understand, uh, but text were a lot longer compared to HSK six, for example, on the actual exam. Mm -hmm. Some of the materials were also harder than in the mock uh, exam. But the listening I was feeling uh, rather comfortable with, just having a variety of vocabulary definitely uh, needed. Uh, whereas then on the reading side, there was a, exam-wise, there was a lot of different types of questions that you are not quite used to with the HSSK 1 to 6, as you're more used to having multiple choice questions. Well, in the seven to nine, you are hit with more like where you type out your answers and significantly less multiple choice options on there and more variety on the on the different topics. What I found surprisingly, I'm not sure if it should be a surprise, but what I found difficult was the translation part where you are looking at an English text and then you have to translate it into a spoken Chinese. And translation truly is a skill besides daily life. I mm. haven't worked as a translator or interpreter. And looking at an English text with such a different word order to Chinese, well, that mm -hmm. was quite a challenge yeah. to do, especially the first time round. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so that was one of the questions I remember asking in that initial article, because in the standard, it specifies some things that were not part of the earlier exams, and translation was one of them, right? So yes. I'm curious, was the translation like a separate part of the exam? Was it a compulsory part? Like, could, for example, could you have passed the exam even if you couldn't do translation? Like, what if you don't know English? What are you supposed to do? Or is this like a, you have to speak major world languages in order to get the certificate? Or, or what's, the, what's the idea there? When you register for the exam, you have a few languages uh, to choose from. Uh, I believe there was uh, like Korean, Japanese, English, Arabic. There might have been French or German. I am not 100% sure now, mm -hmm. but there were a few. So you would have to 
uh, be able to understand at least one of those uh, languages. And obviously, most people do know English or some other language. So I guess for most people, maybe this is enough. I'm just curious how it... Yeah, do go on. Technically, if you were not able to do those and get a zero from that section, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to speculate if how much that would affect on your on your final scoring if you would be able to mm-hmm. uh, to pass or not. But there was both a written translation and an oral translation, so it was an important part of the exam. Okay, but it, at least it was counted in the in the score as any other question. So maybe you could pass, but it would be like if you missed lots of things on the reading. Well, you could also pass, but well, you would still get lots of points deducted for not doing well on that section. Yeah. Okay. Yes. A follow up question because there was another part that everybody found very interesting, and that was the handwritten part because uh, in the old HSK, handwriting hasn't been something that has been explicitly tested on, say, the the normal written exams because, well, it is always multiple choice and uh, multiple choice, obviously, it's easier to correct and so on and so forth. But then we have these lists of characters that you're supposed to be able to know how to write by hand. Was that part of the exam and how, how did that work? So they have not implemented that yet, perhaps when the new one to six will come, but there was no handwriting uh, part. It was fully done on a computer. And this was actually done as a, a home exam, meaning that you had to have an empty room at your home with a, a Zoom call towards you, uh, watching mm. you type on yeah. your computer. So no, no handwriting here. Yeah, okay. Because I guess you could do handwriting with multiple choice as well, but it would be very logistically tricky to do because, for example, doing it at home, I mean, you can't really write it on a paper and then like mail it to the to the examiners. Exactly. It, doesn't, it doesn't work. Mm. Yes, it could be quite uh, difficult to actually for the marking and scoring of the exams when when or if they come up with the handwriting section. So we will see what they yeah. will do. Yeah. I think most people were a bit surprised that they chose to introduce that in the standard. But then again, the standard is not the test. There is nothing that says, I think, that they have to do this on the test. Maybe it won't be on the test. It's just that they want to say that, yeah, if, you, if you're into handwriting, here is a list of things you should focus on. And, and I think that's perfectly fine. I mean, that's even a, a good indicator to say that, well, maybe you don't need to handwrite all the characters, but uh, at least these would be nice. And I think that's, that's, uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, definitely. And recording the exam also what kind of a surprised me perhaps on the speaking section, whereas I would consider my everyday uh, speaking abilities in Chinese to be rather good or giving us a speech on a topic, but apparently being able to talk in length in an exam situation being recorded can be a quite nervous uh, situation indeed. So I found the speaking part uh, quite challenging as well, especially on one of the questions where you had to listen to an article or text. You were listening maybe for two minutes or so. And after that, you were asked uh, questions about the contents, what you just heard. Now, it's no news that memory and using different ways to remember things is definitely a part of HSK. Uh, like five and six as well, but it was kind of on another level with the new cases, case seven to nine. 
Yeah, and, and maybe that's a good example of sometimes an exam like this does not cover what you're actually doing in real life very often. Because even if you lived in China for more than a decade, it's very rare for people to come up to you and say things for two minutes and then ask you to kind of summarize what I just said. And normal conversations don't work like that. And obviously the skills overlap. You can't be really, really good at one of them and then completely unable to do the other. But it's definitely a matter of practice, uh, I think. And this is maybe why the exam results sometimes can be a bit weird. Like you can have, I'm not talking about your exam specifically here, but test exams in general, you can have someone who has passed an advanced exam, but they can't really speak the language at all. And then sometimes you can also have the opposite people who don't do well on exams, but they can actually communicate really well. And this is important for people who are listening, I think, to not take your test exams too seriously. Like it's nice to to do, and like Sarah said before, uh, for say goal setting, motivation, for having like a path to some kind of milestone you want to achieve, something like that. That's great. But as an assessment of what you can do with the language in real life, sometimes it doesn't really work that way. Do you have any any thoughts about that after taking this particular exam? Now, saying a few you know section of the exam uh, was difficult and and challenging, but. In a way, I am happy that it's challenging and it should be challenging uh, at this level as they are, when they are promoting this new exam and talking about it, they also present it in a way like this is for people who are, for example, studying a degree in China or wanting to work as translators or interpreters. So these are definitely the skills that you would need to use Chinese on, on that level. So in a way, I am happy that all of these different uh, aspects of the language are covered. They might not come in my daily life or in such, but as someone, you know, been learning Chinese for over 10 years and has just been waiting for a chance to uh, set a new goal, uh, it is quite exciting uh, to have this exam. Uh, of course, it, exams might not be motivating for everyone, but uh, luckily for mm -hmm. me, they work. Yeah, maybe that's something your PhD research will, will show. <laughs> we will see. Uh, yeah. But I think you bring up a very important point here. If you have studied Chinese for a long time, like we have, if you don't work with Chinese and you don't have some way to naturally challenge yourself all the time, it's quite easy to stagnate. And that doesn't have to be a bad thing. And maybe you've reached a level you're comfortable with, and, and that's fine. I mean, you don't, there is nothing that says you have to always you know, improve, maybe you should do something else. Maybe you should learn French or you should, I don't know, do something else. There are other things to do. But if you want to keep pushing and getting better and better at Chinese, I think it's necessary to have some kind of challenge. Because if you do the same things that you normally do, well, I mean, when you've done that for a decade, you will be quite good at doing these things in Chinese and you will actually not learn that much. I mean, you will gradually improve if you keep doing things in Chinese, no matter what it is. But I, I completely agree with you that if you want to push beyond this or want to keep learning once you are an advanced student, having some kind of goal or a clear challenge to do things that you normally don't do is essential. And I think HSK is one way to do this. Yes, I totally agree because even myself, after I graduated uh, from my master and I started teaching Chinese, I was always like for years, I was like comfortable with my with my level but still I was stagnated on that level because even I use Chinese in my job every day, single day most of my students are on beginner or intermediate levels 
I teach mm-hmm. a lot of HSK one to three, and I would like to think that uh, through the years I have gotten good at teaching those levels, but it doesn't the same way offer a challenge to improve my own Chinese. It's more I've been mm-hmm. improving perhaps yeah. my teaching skills, but for my own Chinese, I needed something else. Daily life was not enough. Daily work also not enough. So some other mm. challenging goal. And I remember having a, a similar experience or reflection when I started teaching professional development courses in Chinese. Before that, I should say, I mostly taught university courses in Chinese, which were, well, not very closely aligned to HSK at all because they were courses for engineering students and we studied natural sciences and mathematics and so on in Chinese. Not at a super advanced level. We used, for example, we used high school textbooks and and sometimes easier stuff. But it was still speaking mostly with people who had studied Chinese full time for a year or two. So clearly not in the range of the HSK 7 to 9 that we are talking about here, right? But when I started teaching professional development courses in Chinese, most of the participants were actually native speakers. And I felt I could do that like the first time I did it. I think it worked. But that still spurred me to improve quite a lot because when I suddenly have to present things, not just so that people understand what I'm saying, but so that it's actually easy for them to understand and learn from what I'm saying, that provided this type of challenge for me at least. So I think wherever you are, if you are in this type of situation, finding some way that encourages you or forces you, even if you want to really do it that way, to go beyond or beyond what you're currently doing and kind of leave your, your comfort zone. I think it's almost required to keep learning unless you are naturally extremely curious and just do these things naturally. Yeah, I think for most of us, we are needing a, a certain type of goal to, to strive for. And for a person like me, and I, I think a lot of people perhaps are able to uh, to feel the same way as well, is that I'm easily a person perhaps that to, to put things, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm going to, you know, read that Chinese book later, or I'll, yeah, I, I'll get to that when it's not so busy at work, or other kind of reasons to, to postpone things. So what I sometimes give as a tip as well, if you still have that kind of feeling that you want to improve, you want to have the challenge, sign up for something first and you will then start to figure things out. Maybe you sign up for a course in Chinese, maybe you sign up for an exam, maybe you sign up for some sort of a project, but just, you know, say yes and see where that takes you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice. Put yourself in a situation where you kind of have to do the things you want to do. Don't put yourself in a situation where it's just nice because you'll always find other things that are also nice. But if you really want to get it done, just just put yourself in a situation where that's the only thing you can do and, and then, then you don't have any choice. Yeah. And another thing I just want to clear up that I think I forgot to say is that the exam for HSK 7 to 9 it's one exam, but you can get grades seven to nine. So it's not three separate exams like it is for the lower levels. So you just sign up for one of them. And then depending on how well you do, uh, you get a certain uh, score and then you get a certain level. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, that is one of the mystery around the seven to nine exam as well. As to this day, I have not yet seen on the standard of how many scores you need to get to to get to onto a certain level. I, I certainly I have my scores, I have my level, but I haven't seen a standard out of 100. 
how much you need to get on each section or total to get to seven or eight or nine level. That is still quite a mystery yet. Can I ask what you, I'm sure everybody wants to know how it went on the exam for you personally. Yes, yeah, certainly. So we have listening, reading, writing, translation and speaking uh, five sections in the exam for all of which uh, full score is 100 for each section. So for listening, I have uh, 75, reading 76, writing 75, translation, which includes both written and oral, 83, and speaking 59. And based on this score, then they have given me a level eight uh, certificate. Okay, but we don't know exactly why or what you would have needed to do to get nine or how far away you were from seven. That you don't know, right? Yes, I don't know if I barely got eight or if I'm, well, I can't be close to nine if I'm, you know, suspecting with my, speculating a little bit perhaps on the, based on the scores, but there's no exact Mm. standard that I have seen yet. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm curious because you said earlier that you thought the translation bit was difficult, but you had the highest score on the translation, right? Yes, I'm not quite sure how that happened. And I would be curious to know on the like what kind of scores I get from the written and the spoken translation, but that's not possible as we only have a, a total score for, for that, uh, that section. But yeah, surprisingly, that was the best section of the whole exam. But congratulations on on the result. That's great. Did you expect to get uh, to pass or to get an eight? Or did you just simply have no idea what you would get? I was on the fence on perhaps um, to get a seven, like maybe a barely to pass to get a seven. I I hope that it would be the scoring would be strict enough and not too, too easily to get a nine, for example. Yeah. So I'm very happy that there is one more level to kind of step and mm-hmm. different ways can continue to to improve uh, yourself so in that way i'm happy there is still a a, a big challenge left. <laughs> yeah 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 i mean if you got on a nine now what would you what would you do i mean then you would have to find some something else to aim for well there is always maximum score for each section you could aim for as well i guess if you are a completionist and want to really really do the hsk yeah, not so sure if I'm that kind of person to, to necessarily need a, a full score. I haven't got a full score on any of the HSK exams, but I'm happy I didn't get to level nine and then lose my motivation again uh, for years. So happy there's a challenge left. Yeah. So you mentioned this before because you said you, you've taken the old exams as well. And I know it's a little bit difficult to compare because you're comparing the, say, 2.0 and the levels one through six maybe with the seven to nine levels on the this HSK 3.0. So it's a bit hard to compare. But I mean, you've also looked at the, the new exams and you, you're interested in these things as well. What do you think is the biggest difference or some interesting things that will change once we get HSK one through six? Uh, that is a great question because indeed we have that what is called the standard curricula for for the Chinese that will be used later for Chinese learning. But Hmm. how will that translate into the exams itself? It's kind of still yet to be seen. Uh, As so far, we only have the different vocabulary requirements for each level. 
but mm. it has also been made clear that this is the standard in general for teaching Chinese and perhaps yeah. on uh, developing the Chinese language courses at the Chinese universities. But the exact details mm. for the exams itself, I believe they mm. haven't been fully published yet. And I guess we'll see once they have mock exams and once they have some trial pilot tests and so on. But one thing I think we can be sure of is that the, the, in general, the levels will be adjusted at least because, for example, the old HSK-1 uh, used to contain something like 150 words, which is barely measurable in terms of uh, proficiency. Like, I understand why they do it, because it's nice to encourage people and you can try test and you can get a certificate, even if you haven't studied for that long. But if at least if we look at the contents of the word list and so on, it seems to be an upgrade in difficulty in general. So the, the new 3.0 HSK6 will probably be harder than the 2.0 at the same level. But then, like you said, exactly what will be on the exam, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll see. So what if somebody wants to take the HSK? They want to do what you have done and what advice would you give them? And we can assume now that they want to take the same, this advanced exam to begin with. What, how should they prepare? So preparing for this uh, exam, so to this date, they aren't re yet like dedicated textbook or such where, where you should go to. So you kind of have to gather yourself kind of what kind of uh, materials and what kind of ways you would like to uh, improve yourself for the exam. Uh, the listening section, I found it to be rather similar with HSK, coming from HSK SIG. It probably will not be a huge uh, shock for listening and writing, You uh, listening and reading. You do have to be ready to type out your answers and not just rely on a multiple choice. Also, it's very important to start reading on a variety of different topics that will be present in the exam. Some of the topics, for example, in my exam included Chinese literature, business-related texts, winter sports, uh, marine life, architecture, talking mm. about survey results, writing an opinion piece, translating a text about flying cars, talking about Silk Road, <laughs> about popular science, giving a speech to a medical uh, volunteers group. So the vocabulary is uh, extremely wide. So it's easy for us to read things we are interested in, like for myself, read about education. Yeah. But this exam, you truly have to read a variety of articles or news pieces from different topics. Mm. So th this goes well with what we said earlier about the comfort zone. When you have this challenge, you know you have to do this, so you maybe will encourage you to read things you normally don't read. So I remember when I took the first uh, advanced TOCFL, which is the what is a corresponding exam in Taiwan, in 2011, I think. And I remember that reading speed was a big issue for me. I could read the text, I understood what they said, but I just couldn't read all the questions. I didn't finish. I think I barely passed, but I failed maybe one third of the questions simply because I hadn't read the text. I didn't have time. Do you think that that was an issue? I know that's hard maybe to quantify here. What was your experience? Were you able to finish? And obviously that depends on how quickly you read also, but what was your experience about this in this area for the exam? Oh, definitely for the reading section of the exam, your reading speed uh, has to be quick. But not only that, 
you have to be able to, based on the questions, to go into the text, to, to scan it and find out the answers, because nowhere you have time to read the whole, uh, whole text character by character. For me, I did finish and answer all the questions, but there was one section where you had an article cut up into pieces and mixed up the order of the paragraphs and then mm. one extra paragraph, which is, was not part of it, but similar, was thrown oh, into yeah. the mix. And you have to put them into the order to create that article and find out which paragraph does not belong here. I got the answer done, but once I was looking at it, I realized, wait a minute, maybe I should have changed something. But the clock was ticking, so I did not have time to yeah. change my answer. Yeah. But that's a great, not just for exams, but I think I, I love using that type of exercise as a teacher, not obviously for beginner Chinese, but you can do this actually with simpler texts and dialogues too. Maybe not the excluding what doesn't fit because that's really hard. I mean, if you really want to challenge your students then yes, but, but arranging things and having to think about what things actually mean, in what context would you say this? Does it make sense to have this thing after that thing and so on? I think that's, that's a, that's a good exercise, but it must, it sounds pretty hard though. Yes, definitely. I feel that with the new um, seven to nine exam, there's a, there's a great variety of different type of question types, uh, which I really enjoyed, you know, as a learner, but also as a teacher. We, of course, mm. have that true or false or multiple choice, but also to type in your answer or to put paragraph into an order or um, to, to describe a, a graphic or to write an opinion piece, or to give mm. a speech about your opinions. So there was a lot of variety of the different type of questions they had in the exam, which I thought was great. Yeah, and, and that's one of the criticisms many people have about the, the old exams, I think, is that if you only have a certain number of questions and they have only like two or three different types, you can prepare for that in a certain way. For example, if you have lots of multiple choice that work in the same way, you can hone your skills to do those questions, but maybe that doesn't translate well to real world skills. But it essentially, it becomes easier to study for the test specifically. But if you, like you describe here, there are, there's such a variety of different questions. You can't prepare for all the questions and all the possible topics, or you can, but that's exactly the same as being getting better at Chinese in general, which is what we want. We don't want students to focus on, I want to get good at HSK, but I don't care about Chinese. Like that's, that's absurd, but some people seem to think in that way. So I wanted to ask you, you've taught students mostly in the range of HSK one to three, I think you said. There are probably people still listening, I think, <laughs> who are not themselves advanced learners yet and who wouldn't consider HSK 7 to 9. Maybe they are in this HSK 1 to 3 or maybe 4 to 5. And as we've said, the new versions are not out yet, so we can't talk about those. But in general, if you imagine that we have people listening now who are interested in taking any of the current HSK 1 to 6, what's your advice there in general? How, how should you think about the exam? If you want to take the exam, what should you keep in mind? How can you prepare? I think the exams are great for those who like setting goals and who find them motivating. And I like that in the current uh, 2.0, we do have that HSK1 at around 150 vocabulary level mm. because we have a lot of adult learners here, uh, for example, in my students, 
who are starting to learn Chinese in their 40s or 50s or 60s. So I'm very happy that for these students who are learning it just for their daily life use, they also have a way of setting goals for themselves. And with Hazy's game, my opinion is that uh, uh, you use it as a tool to motivate yourself or uh, perhaps you need it for certain reasons or you like to have this kind of a, like a, a ladder for your exams or to benchmark your, uh, your, your learning or such. Mm. But it's a tool and we kind of see it a little bit separate on learning Chinese in general. We are learning Chinese for daily life, for using it, traveling, living in China or studying mm. things in Chinese. And the HSK kind of like next to it, but not being the same. For the exam, then exam, we use exam strategies we would not be using when we are talking Chinese as out on the streets. So on exams, there are different things that you can do. For exams purely, of course, for one to six, we have a great variety of the practice exams available to get used to uh, what type of exams they are, which is part of taking exams is to know how the exams work. And for the levels, there's so many materials as well that you can use, uh, podcasts for your listening skills, different types of apps, flashcards, and and so on. And uh, so depending on your level, of course, as we have different type of question types on the different levels of the, of the Hazy Scale. I would also like to add that there's a lot of like materials, learning materials, or books with the word HSK on it. And if you're using those kind of materials, it doesn't necessarily mean you're only using it to pass an exam. Most of the vocabulary is still useful for your daily life learning. Perhaps there's a few words that are a bit old fashioned as this 2.0 exam came 10 years ago, but most of it mm -hmm. are still words that you would use in your, in your everyday life. Yeah, and it's good that you, you mentioned that because obviously when I say that people shouldn't take the HSK too seriously, I'm focusing on the things that are different from the HSK, what you test on the HSK and what you do in real life. But obviously the vast majority of the language is exactly the same. I mean, you, you use the same words, it's the same grammar, it's the same characters, it's the same everything. Uh, so yeah, a, a good reminder. Just to tag on to what you, you just said, I think that if you want to get good grades in general, really, really understanding how you are tested is extremely important. I mean, beyond the language proficiency bit here, you can have, like we've said before, you can have someone who's pretty good at Chinese, but they still fail exams because they don't plan how they spend their time. They get stuck on questions that they maybe won't get right, and then they don't have time for the easier questions that come in another section, or they just don't, maybe don't read the questions in advance if it's a listening exercise and so on. So studying mock exams, I think, is really good. And that's true for your Chinese course at university or in a language school too. If you do care about your grades and not just your proficiency, I mean, I understand people care about both, but if you want good grades, you need to understand the, the system that's used to set these grades, and that is extremely important. Yes, definitely. And there's perhaps one thing of taking exams as well. For most of us, when taking the HSK exam, we are not alone in a soundproof uh, room, just ourselves, mm. mostly. It's, it's often a big classroom with a lot of students taking different levels of the exam at the same time. So when you're listening, you really, you know, have to, you know, get your head right that you are focusing only on what you are doing 
and plucking out yeah. everyone else. So I sometimes tell my students, like, go do your mock exam in a busy coffee shop, like Starbucks in the middle of mm. the city. Yeah, if yeah. you can do it there, then the exam is going to be a piece Yeah, that's of great. And also we have all these studies in, of validity in terms of when you memorize things in certain contexts, it's easier to retrieve that memory in a similar context. And so in general, practicing in the type of situation or context that you will be tested in is good in general for all these, all these reasons. Great. Okay, so we're coming up on the hour here, but uh, I still want to ask if there's anything we haven't talked about, something about the HSK or something else that you thought about while we had this conversation that you want to share? I think we very well covered all the different parts of the exam and so, but there was one very interesting thing that ha happened during the exam. And it was the very first audio for the listening. And I started to listen to that and looking at the question options. And I was like, okay, we're talking about the book here. I have like no idea what is this book is about. Okay, this is ex perhaps a vocabulary I'm not so familiar with. And when coming towards the end, I realized, wait a minute, this listening is about the Chinese book Sankey, three-body problem that one of my friends have translated from Chinese into Finnish. So right after this exam was finished, I just had to message my friend, like, this book that you translated was in the exam. Nice. <laughs> had you read the book too? Uh, I have not, so it has to go onto my reading list now, finally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do that. Uh, I think the first book is, is, is definitely worthwhile. Okay, so uh, yeah, that's funny. I remember also sometimes on exams, they, they talk about things where you actually know the thing they're talking about. Like either you've read the book or you have actually studied the thing, the phenomenon they're talking about. So you can just answer the question immediately without reading anything. And, and that doesn't happen very often. But it's, it's funny that it, your friend also translated this into Finnish. Maybe you should um, read both and use it as a kind of translation practice. But then again, you did very well on the translation part of the exam. So you don't need that. Okay, so if people want to know more about you, uh, you've mentioned your website. Are there any other places online they should go or how do they get in touch with you or how can they find out more? So definitely my website, uh, sarayaksola.com is the place to go and you can find links to all the other social media that I have. Perhaps as one more shout out if anyone is more interested also on the research that I'm doing to check out on my Twitter at Sarayaksva as well. So that will be mostly mm -hmm. dedicated then on to the motivation of Chinese language learning uh, in specific. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'll be sure to follow what you're, you're posting too. And like I said before, I'll put links to these in the, in the show notes so that people can uh, find you. But I think it's been great talking to you about the HSK. It's um, an interesting new way to test your more advanced ability. And I totally understand your your thoughts about challenging yourself and, and wanting to learn more and using this as a kind of benchmark or a motivation to do so. So thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and talking about this. Thank you so much, Ola, for inviting me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. This concludes the interview. And don't forget to check the show notes for links to the websites and social media channels that we mentioned. At the moment, there is only limited information about HSK 1 through 6, but when those roll out, I will be sure to return to the HSK on the podcast. If you have any questions or comments about the things we talked about in this week's episode, please head over to the written article on Hacking Chinese and leave a comment. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Hacking Chinese podcast. If you like this episode, please share it. More information and inspiration about learning and teaching Chinese can be found at hackingchinese.com. See you in the next episode, and until then, good luck with your studies.